we need to grieve the lives that we had before because I, I don't know if, if those lives are going to look quite the same as they once did. I don't know if there's going to be a return to business as usual. Um, and for me personally, I, I don't want there to be because it didn't feel normal for me to live in the world as it was with that much inequality. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This is Season 2, Episode 4, and in this particular episode, I spoke with Lee Richards and Camille Barton, two queer decolonial activists and researchers living in Berlin about their practice of somatic healing, yoga, and the novel coronavirus. We also discuss how they are coping with what is going on in their communities here in Berlin and abroad and how we can help marginalized people navigate through this current crisis. First, I spoke with Lee Richards, who is also known by their stage name, Daddy Puss Rex. Lee is based in Berlin. They are a multidisciplinary artist, poet, stand-up comedian, and co-producer of the queer talk show, Just the Tea. They often use a mix of humor and poetry to navigate topics such as anti-blackness, racism, transphobia, and general colonial nonsense. The goal is to touch hearts, minds, and butts with active consent. Additionally, Lee is a yoga teacher whose classes center Black and queer experiences, narratives, and bodies of all shapes, sizes, and abilities, giving space to practitioners to fully exercise their agency on and off the mat. Their goal here is to decolonize the practice of yoga and to bring it to marginalized communities in yoga world today. When did you move to Berlin and why did you decide to move to Berlin? I moved to Berlin back in 2014, although my love affair with Berlin began in fact about 14 years ago. I came here after a breakup and uh, have been kind of back and forth ever since, but I've been a resident for about six years. And I came here because I followed my heart. I met someone in Australia and uh, they're German. So we decided to move here together. Where are you originally from? Kind of a convoluted story, but I was born in South London uh, in the 80s. Uh, my family emigrated to Canada when I was about eight or nine, and I grew up in Quebec, the French-speaking part of Canada. Is your family currently located in those areas? And if so, how have they been impacted by the current novel coronavirus pandemic? My family is one uh, that is quite split. So I have quite a bit of family on my maternal side that is in the UK. I have quite a bit of immediate family who live in Canada, and I have family who live in the USA. So for example, my dad and his wife live in California, where there's a full lockdown. My siblings live in Canada, and where they live in Toronto and Ottawa. The measures don't seem to be very draconian, but everyone seems to be extra careful. And the UK, the situation there, it's quite precarious, but my people seem to be fine, isolating, not going to work, especially. I've been reading a lot about the ways in which 
African-Americans or Black people living in the United States in particular are disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus to the point of higher rates of infection and death. And there's new data in the UK, British context, in which Black and other minority ethnics are also disproportionately impacted in immigrants. The first eight doctors in the NHS to die from the coronavirus were all immigrants. Given that your family is of the African diaspora, are you worried or concerned about them being disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus? Absolutely. I'm definitely concerned. There's a little bit of a hierarchy of concern at the moment that I have, I guess. So I'm at the top of the sort of pyramid is my concern for my relatives in the UK. In particular, the not least I have a cousin. Uh, she works as a nurse. I don't think it's frontline, but is still very much in contact with people on a regular basis. My family in Canada, less so. Canada seems to be kind of handling the pandemic in a responsible manner. Um, and for my family in the US, I mean, Corona aside, I was probably always more concerned about my family in the US just by virtue of being black anyway. And they're both retired, my dad and his wife. Oh no, rather my dad is retired, but his wife works at Kaiser Permanente, uh, which is of course a very large uh, healthcare corporation. But uh, as far as I know, they're both doing well and staying healthy. I want to turn to Berlin where you currently live. How has the city changed for you since the lockdown began in mid-March? A couple of things have definitely changed. Uh, I have a pre-existing condition. Uh, I'm asthmatic. So as soon as I heard that people with COPDs were like were at a higher risk, I kind of self-quarantined fairly quickly. The times that I have been out have been, I suppose, in the earlier days of the pandemic here in Germany, were a little bit fraught. I was absolutely verbally attacked for being outside in the early days when the sort of panic was kind of peak. And uh, so that kind of created a, a whole new level of anxiety about navigating Berlin as a black trans person. So that definitely changed. Also, just the amount of racism and transphobia that I'm exposed to now has greatly diminished. So that's definitely changed for the better, in my opinion. And I think it has absolutely brought back some feelings, some old feelings for a lot of Germans. You know, there are reports of people calling the police on their neighbors for not respecting the social distancing norms. And Germany seems to maybe have a short memory in that case. Just a couple of changes I've noticed. I want to turn to something you said about what difference it might be like to have be under this kind of lockdown situation as a transgender person and alluding to there being less of an issue. Can you can you elaborate on that a bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's not a whole lot to elaborate on. It Just being indoors most of the time reduces the amount of exposure time that I have to white people, cis people, and therefore reduce the amount of ignorance ignorance I face on a daily basis. So this lockdown has assuaged some of my anxieties. Great. But it has, of course, increased others. It's been a mixed bag pandemic. At the same time, you're such a integral part of a queer community here in Berlin, and particularly a queer 
BIPOC community uh, by providing yoga classes uh, to queer and, and Black, Indigenous, and POC communities here, as well as comedy. And many of those, those kinds of activities involve people coming together in a group, in a room sometimes, maybe even outside, depending on the situation. How do you manage those practices that you've had before in the age of corona? Well, far as the comedy goes, I haven't been performing much of the comedy. Uh, although in these corona times, on my corona to-do list is to actually edit the video of the talk show that I host with my co-director. That's on the corona list. There's so many things on the corona list. In terms of getting like people coming together, as you mentioned, yes, I am a yoga teacher. And the shift from a physical space to a virtual space was actually quite difficult for me to manage. And uh, I'm old, I don't like change. So the moving from that physical to being able to being able to create a virtual container for yoga was actually quite difficult and kind of triggered quite a bit of anxiety for me. I tested it out once or twice and was like, I'm not sure if this is for me, but then I had to find a way to create the container that still allows the students to feel connected, but also is kind of rewarding or fulfilling to me at the same time. Because for me, a lot of what is very important in a yogic context is the sensory input that I receive from the students, whether it be noticing like the temperature change in the room or being able to hear them breathe or um, being able to see the colors in their faces, that sensory input is very, very important. Um, as a yoga teacher. So learning how to adapt in order to be able to maintain that has been quite challenging, but very rewarding, ultimately. So you've been engaged or you at least tried to, in your comedy, think about decolonization and decolonial practices within a broader context, a social context, and a queer context. How do you put decolonization into action in a virtual space or in this current moment? The nature, for example, at least on the yoga side, the nature of my practice is one that is decolonial inherently. So focus is always on feeling of a posture rather on what it's supposed to look like. I adapt a lot of my postures for different body types, different body abilities. So moving away from this colonial viewpoint of what yoga, as it was imported from uh, the East to the West, what is supposed to look like, you know, thin, white, able-bodied, cis people doing yoga. So already in what I offer, I'm deconstructing those notions. Normally, when I am, I suppose, teaching classes in person, I do also have a sliding scale for my students. So white queers pay more, a nominal fee more than queers of color, black queers, um, and non-queer people pay more than that. So um maintaining that structure online has been difficult to navigate mm -hmm. um because i think still commodifying an online product or an online offering is still very nascent for a lot of people so learning i think how to do that with decolon decoloniality in mind is going to be something that i have to work on and as for comedy and poetry I have been participating in a lot of other people's outputs. So I've not been creating a lot myself. And it's been very heartening to see what's being made. 
during this, this pandemic. What decolonial works have you been reading during this period of the pandemic? <laughs> I'm currently working through a, a book called Pleasure Activism mm-hmm. uh, by Adrian Marie Brown. And that really has shifted my view on the function of pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that view was, of course, informed by capitalism, by colonialism, by patriarchy, anti-blackness, white supremacy. So reading this book has been revolutionary, in fact. I'm also currently reading, I don't know if it, I don't know if it counts, counts, air quotes, as decolonial, uh, but I'm currently reading The Souls of Black People by W.E.B. Du Bois. I think it should count as decolonial because that was certainly not part of my school curriculum growing up. So decolonizing a curriculum is uh, definitely part of the agenda also. I want to turn to the pleasure one. I'm also reading that book by Adrienne Marie Brown on pleasure activism. Yeah. So amazing about it is that it, as you pointed out, allows us the space and unapologetically so to step outside of what we've been told and to just embrace ourselves, to love ourselves, to care about ourselves, and to reimagine these different ways of interacting with people that's not about possession, that's not about conquering, but really about seeing and connecting with humans. And and as a decolonial practice, I think that that is something that we should all try to strive for. But I guess one of the things I would ask is, how would you define, and you could choose either one or maybe both, joy and pleasure? How would I define joy and or pleasure? Wow. Joy is a feeling of inner radiance and like pure joy is one of inner radiance and it fills up the space in between your atoms and emanates through your pores and bounces off everything and everyone that you come into contact with when you are in a place of pure joy. I think there's probably some overlap between joy and pleasure. Everything that is joyful is also pleasurable. Everything is pleasurable that is joyful. I'm going to say that everything that is joyful is inherently pleasurable, but not all things that are pleasurable are inherently joyful. I'm probably going to go with that distinction. And so pleasure, for me, also ties in very strongly to my senses. So what sensory inputs am I taking in now that gives me pleasure? So joy is an inner radiance and pleasure is probably rooted in more of a a material sense, I would say, or a physical sense. Can you speak to, to the best that you can, ways in which LGBTQI people in Berlin, queer folk, are handling and coping with the current coronavirus pandemic? Oh my goodness. I, I'm floored, absolutely floored by how, how quickly the queers mobilize. I'm floored by how generous the queers have been. I'm blown away by how much kind of queer solidarity really came together so quickly and and for so many different things, you know, there were like the queer rainbow pages so that people, if they're offering services, they could check to see who's offering something 
and then if they needed help, they could reach out that way. There is queer queer drag nights that have moved online, which have been phenomenal. Like I think they're absolutely fantastic. I think also the sort of general feedback is that they're wildly appreciated as well. There's been absolutely like I've been absolutely uplifting other queer in particular people of color, black people, African heritage people who are offering healing practices and bodywork movements. I'm blown away. Like I absolutely love being part of the queer community and the response, like people making masks, donating food, grocery shopping. I'm just blown away, blown away. What it will mean for us to reimagine a space, a city that has to respond to a pandemic where we might have to maintain social distancing, aren't going to be able to have large gatherings, and we're, we're going to have to have different ways of being close and intimate in a way that hinders some of the wonderful work that you and other queer people in Berlin have been doing. Do you have hope that there'll be a summer that allows for fun, pleasure, and solidarity in a full sense? Necessity is the mother of all invention, so... You know, I absolutely believe that we will find new ways to come together, uh, be together, to connect. That being said, Berlin is also a city that, I don't know, maybe prides itself almost on illicit behaviors. So whilst, yes, I have lots of hope for a post-corona future, I don't doubt that the Berlin underground scene will be in full effect regardless <laughs> of any i think i would really like to like a couple of things that i would really like to see are absolutely you know the introduction of a universal basic income that has absolutely it's been talked it's been being talked about in berlin for years but now there seems to be maybe a bit more traction in understanding that actually should this occur if you want to keep your economy working then the people need to have money i absolutely want to see more workplaces being accessible, more like this whole shift online. A lot of our disabled, differently abled siblings have been asking for so many of these things and have been just getting so much pushback. Oh, it's too much work and we can't do this. So I really, really hope that this opens up an earnest conversation as to how we can become a more inclusive society. I have hope, but I think people seem to forget easily a collective amnesia that can happen and this year has already been quite the year so if anything else happens <laughs> in 2020 we might forget all about corona then i interviewed camille barton about their research camille barton is an artist coach and somatic movement practitioner working on the intersections of wellness drug policy, inclusion, and social change. Miel is the director of the Collective Liberation Project and creator of a trauma-informed approach to diversity and decolonization work that centers the body and lived experience. This work is underpinned by ongoing research into somatics and social justice. So you're currently based in Berlin, and I wanted to know, when did you move here and why did you decide to move to Berlin? So I officially moved here in July 2019, so I'm pretty new to the city, mm -hmm. um, but it had been, yeah, it had been a desire for a long time. 
Um, and I moved for joy, to be honest. I just needed to be experiencing more of the like everyday things that give me joy um, so I can continue being of service and doing my life work. And I didn't feel like I could do that in the UK. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, even though it's a pretty wild situation uh, for all of us in our different contexts. But I'm grateful to, yeah, I feel like I've made the right decision to be here and see what unfolds. Since you started off with joy and say, said that that's the reason you moved here, can you define joy or what brings you joy? Joy is something I'm allowing myself to feel into more and allowing myself to prioritize. Um, I suppose I could define it as the feeling of being completely present and connected with, with life, with my body and with my sensations and really celebrating and reveling in that. I was deeply inspired by Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism, um, and the ways that she theorizes being able to really connect uh, pleasure and what we find most pleasurable, most exciting, um, vibrant with the organizing work that we do, with the transformation and social change work that we engage with really trying to see these as connected and not separate. So I know for me, for a long time, doing um, activism in the UK, I really felt, to an extent, well, I can't let myself be happy or joyful until the revolution comes. You know, I can't let myself experience this while others are suffering. And now um, I'm really grateful to be opening into a new way of being that allows me to grieve and acknowledge and notice the suffering and the pain that exists in this world but also as a result of that really really celebrate the joy the moments of connection and the beauty that does exist and really try and allow that to to flourish and grow some things that bring me joy um, day to day and practically are dancing I love to dance um, and to really feel my body, particularly to music that has polyrhythms or bass, lots of bass frequencies. Ooh, I love bass. Um, Saunas also, I really enjoy. Um, They just seem to give me a reset to sweat out toxins, to have all my muscles relax because I notice that I can store a lot of tension in my muscles. So having a sensation... um, sensory experience like a sauna which just kind of lets that tension go is super delicious for me so those are my kind of um, main two uh, joy joyful practices that I try and integrate into my life as much as possible um, as well as being in nature and being in the sunshine well what's, what's so fascinating about your work is that it is concerned with trying to use liberation or trying to use ideas about the body to decolonize how we experience the world, especially uh, people of color. And I think that so often in activism, there's a sense that one can start off being angry and perhaps exercise the anger at a system that oppresses us. But what you're pointing to is thinking about other modes of expressions that can excavate uh, a certain pleasure from the world and the lineage, as you described, that we have. But in that, so in that respect, you do healing work. And how has that healing work 
been exercised in a decolonial manner in the Berlin context since moving here? Well, since February, I've had the pleasure of offering um, a dance ritual called Work at Karada House. And Karada House is a wonderful space um, in Mitte that is queer and femme-centered space um, led and run by a beautiful human being, a beautiful African heritage woman called Karitia. Um, so I've had the pleasure of offering that space there and it was in person for the first month or so, but since the coronavirus has placed a lot of restrictions on our physical contact, um, we've been offering it online. And that's actually been really wonderful to, yeah, still provide the space for LGBT folks, for people of color to be in our bodies together and really use the healing power of dance to move through moments of anxiety, to release grief, um, to just let things go that need to be let go of. I came to do this kind of work with dance and um, healing work after spending many years in the kind of conscious dance community. Um, this was mostly when I was living in California and I was going to a lot of ecstatic dance classes and also to five rhythms. And I really enjoy these practices. They've done a lot for me. Um, they really helped me to continue healing through dance. Um, when I was at a stage where raves were no longer sustainable for me to be doing as much as I was before. Um, so I'm grateful to the conscious dance community, but I noticed that there isn't very much awareness or attention given to the different oppressions that people experience and the ways that that shows up in our bodies and the ways that that shows up between bodies, including in spaces that do have spiritual ethics or conscious ethics, these power dynamics are still present. So it's been um, disappointing to me that there hasn't been more attention to these issues, despite you know, rises in uh, white supremacist violence. And, you know, the, the just the conditions that we live in. So to me, it felt really important to create a space where people can be fully present in all of the intersections, turn up and be able to be held to explore some of this, this stuff that does affect our, our bodies, our emotions, our mental health, and to use uh, the power of dance to really start to understand that our bodies do hold a lot of this material and we can do things with the body to start to release it somewhat or to at least repattern uh, the grip that these things can have on our lives. And I should also note that these practices um, using dance as a kind of healing tool or as a spiritual tool is something that African indigenous communities have been using for thousands and thousands of years, as well as lots of other traditional indigenous cultures. Although particularly in the African context, and I can speak to my Yoruba ancestors of Nigeria, music, drumming, community, um, rituals were very, very important, a core piece of our spiritual practice. So to me, this work just feels like a coming home to the body, 
a returning to the birthright of the practices that our ancestors have been using. Um, and I really hope that, yeah, more of us can continue to find these rituals and ways of moving that allow us to, to heal, to rebalance and to be available to experience joy. Yeah, it, it sounds also like there's a way in which diversity or thinking about it on a deeper level with respect to decoloniality and really facing and confronting with racism, the legacies of settler colonialism and how we understand relational sets of power. But speaking of power, I know you've done work on drug policy and wellness, particularly in the British context. Can you describe some of that work and how it has helped to form your scholarship, your practice and your lineages of joy? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, I suppose I'll start by talking about um, an offering that I contributed to in 2018 with my colleague Amani Robinson. Um, we created a festival called Regenerate, which was on the intersections of drug policy, racial justice and liberation. This took place in a central London venue called Ugly Duck um, Art Space, and we had an art exhibition with some African heritage queer artists. Um, our opening night featured live uh, jazz Afrofuturist music, and we programmed a bunch of workshops, gatherings, and um, teach-ins across the three days of the festival, and also had harm reduction materials available. We really wanted to create a space where these conversations could be had that were not in a kind of conference setting. Um, Imani and I both work in drug policy and do end up going to conferences on the on the subject and it can be wonderful because there are many great people who work in that in that space but unfortunately there aren't enough people from the communities who are being most targeted and affected by the war on drugs in those conference spaces and the ticket prices are often really inaccessible. Um, you know, I myself usually end up getting sponsored in order to go myself. So, yeah, we really felt, okay, we need a space where we can talk about drugs, where we can talk about racial profiling, where we can talk about how we heal from that as well. So it was beautiful to be able to put that together and kind of offer this template that I hope can begin to ripple out um, of how we can use arts and spaces to rest and connect and be inspired and be in conversation to allow us to kind of vision what can come beyond this moment. Um, similar to the ways our ancestors must have had to vision past and through enslavement. You know, for us to exist now, we really are the wildest dreams. So what does it look like for us to be able to vision past this moment we're in, still being affected by the ravages of the drug war in different cultural contexts. So this was kind of um, the vibe we were trying to create. And in terms of how this ripples to other aspects of my work, um, I've been really grateful to work very closely with Release, who also were a co-sponsor um, of the event we did, Regenerate. They're an amazing nonprofit based in London um, who really speak to the fact that drug policies are a tool for racial and social control in the UK context. When most people hear about the war on drugs, they think about the US 
and we we've seen a lot of documentaries whether it's the 13th um, or michelle alexander's book the new jim crow there's a lot of material about the war on drugs in the usa and rightly so because it's a huge issue but very similar things are happening in the uk in france in brazil in many other cultural contexts and we see that um, it's generally african heritage people who were disproportionately impacted by that in terms of um, state surveillance, in terms of racial profiling and uh, police abuse and incarceration. There's a great book um, on this about the kind of global context and drug policy called Drug Policy and the Global Color Line, or it might be the War on Drugs and the Global Color Line. But it's by Kojo Koram and it's really much needed analysis about how this system is being replicated in different cultural contexts so it's really not just the usa so it's been wonderful working with release and getting to support their work in order to kind of get this message out that when we talk about drugs and drug policy reform we cannot exclude the conversation of race it's integral to the whole thing and has been in the uk uh, context in terms of the way that laws have been generated um, over the years that have continued to marginalize and impact migrant communities, particularly black folks. Um, but we also see the same thing in the US. And if you want to um, look into that more, I suggest watching the documentary The House I Live In, which towards the end kind of gives a historical overview of uh, drug prohibition and the ways that certain drugs were associated with different ethnic groups as a means to criminalize them. So they talk about um, the Chinese uh, communities who were indentured laborers who'd come over to build the railroads in the early 20th century. And at that time, opium was legal, and there were opium dens that were quite frequented by uh, Chinese folks. And they couldn't jail Chinese people for being Chinese, but what they ended up doing was making opium illegal and thereby having an excuse or having a reason to criminalize and incarcerate many Chinese folks. Similar things have happened with Latino communities who were first associated with marijuana and then that was prohibited. And then we saw similar things happen with crack cocaine and African-American communities. So we really cannot separate race from the story of the war on drugs and drug policing. We see these parallels in many cultural contexts and it's been... Um, yeah, an honor to get to start working on this and raising awareness a bit more about it. Because I feel that as, as African heritage people, we know what's been happening to our communities. We see it, we feel it, but we haven't necessarily had the language to historically talk about how this has been weaponized against us. And we haven't necessarily been given space to think about how we've been turned against each other through this, how we have um, turned our backs on people with addiction issues, how we have um, turned our backs on folks selling drugs. And I think there is a need to allow these stories and these histories to kind of get us to reframe how we approach each other, how we support each other to move forward, and to really see that this game has been rigged against us, ask ourselves where we want to go from here. Just to bring it to a slightly more <laughs> positive note with drug policy work, um, something that's been exciting me a lot recently is 
the use of psychedelic substances for healing. There are clinical trials all over the world right now using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, in the UK and and US context, um, African heritage folks are overrepresented for PTSD. So some of the work I'm doing at the moment um, is trying to ensure that there is an awareness of how racial um, trauma plays into PTSD and that that is weaved into the healing modalities being developed with MDMA therapy so that it will actually be applicable, relevant and and a held space for folks with racial trauma. I'm happy to report that the organization who lead on this maps the Multiplinar Dysonary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Last August, they did their first training for therapists of color in the modality. So they're now prioritizing really training more therapists of color so that, you know, there'll be more support there. And I'm also on their advisory board, so really helping them to steer uh, the ways that they structure their work so that it really works to prioritize repairing the harms that have been done by the war on drugs. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the pipeline, but also a lot more work that we need to do. And I always want to say when talking about psychedelics that they are not for everyone. They're not a magic pill. And I don't suggest just trying it without having thoroughly researched these substances and also ensured that you have support from folks. They can be amazing healing tools, but it's good to be mindful and aware of the support that you might need and really do some research before. If you want to find more information, I can recommend the website Erowid, which is E-R-O-W-I-D. That's kind of an on, in an online encyclopedia um, for different entheogens and plant medicines. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right about the ways in which uh, the criminal justice system looks different when um, people of color, working class people of color in particular, are using substances versus not, and how there's an entire history and parallel ones within the British context of the U- U.S. context, as you pointed out, that can speak to that. Uh, and there has been an, a kind of effort for psychedelic research, for example, Michael Pollan's um, latest book, How to Change Your Mind, is a very, uh, uh, I would say, pointed way of thinking about that history and legacy in the U.S. context, but it, it is very much from a white male perspective of someone who's a professor who has a privilege and can say, yes, I took the substance and without any kind of repercussions versus another kind of identity or someone else might, might have a different um, pathway versus writing a, a best-selling book. Uh, and, I, and I think also, too, some of the things that you brought up points to uh, Adrian Marie Brown's work on pleasure activism and uh, their kind of very pointed way of thinking about um, substance use and finding that joy and pleasure and, and in a collective spirit. And is there a way in which I'm going to turn now to Corona, <laughs> the coronavirus, which is a, you know, a very different moment for us to have to recalibrate and to figure out what can work, how we can work uh, in kind of socially distant ways. How have you been coping with um, the coronavirus uh, pandemic since uh, March? You know, every day is different, if I'm honest. Um, The one thread for me is trying to stay present in my body, trying to stay connected to my body and not dissociate. 
um, trying to notice when I am in fight or flight response and use embodied tools to bring myself back down to like calm my nervous system a bit. Um, I have practices that help me with that, but I've also recently been doing um, some courses with Lumos Transforms, which are an amazing organization run by NCAM, African Heritage Women from the US, who, yeah, teach embodied self-regulation tools. So that just means physical things you can do with your body that help you to reduce stress and anxiety in the moment. So I can't recommend their courses enough. They always have scholarship places available. And I think every day they're currently offering a free webinar called Anchoring Resilience, which is about how to continue to come back to your body, how to notice and understand when you are in a fight or flight response mode, and really how you can notice and understand when you're moving towards relaxation. So I think, yeah, I highly recommend them for any folks who want some more tools at this time. They've been incredibly helpful for me. Um, the other thing that's really getting me through is just connecting to moments of gratitude when they come, like looking at the sky and feeling the sun on my skin is bringing me a lot of joy these days, but also letting myself grieve when that needs to come. Um, I've been really enjoying this grief practice, um, that I first read about through Tricia Hersey. Um, who runs the NAP ministry. They're amazing. Advocate napping for our ancestors. Um, in fact, I think, Edna, you might have been one of the first people um, I saw to post about the NAP ministry. Um, so thank you. But yeah, Trisha Hersey of the NAP ministry talks about this practice called the grief jar, which is essentially finding a jar that you have around your house, cutting up some small pieces of paper next to it, and when you feel a moment of grief or sadness or loss, just writing it down on the piece of paper and putting it in the jar. And that's been really helping me to feel like I'm processing and metabolizing um, some of these moments of grief as they arise. And then the last thing that's getting me through is self-love, really trying to make sure that I'm masturbating and feeling pleasure and you know, connecting to ways that I can really take care of myself and feel joy. Then digital connections, ways of connecting with others. Yeah, I mean, it's been, I've been a bit overwhelmed, if I'm honest, with the amount of digital content there is. So I'm getting a bit more specific around how I um, connect with folks and really working out, okay, do I need to do this right now? Would I rather read a book? Would I rather have a nap? Um, but for sure, like having dance parties with friends has been amazing. Having sharing circles where we can all, um, just talk about how we're doing for a little bit, you know, no filter without having to put a brave face on, just being real with each other. Then amazing teach-ins. Also using the time since we are online so much more now to think about digital security and to get a little bit more. Uh, on top of that. So for me, that looks like switching more conversations over to Signal and Telegram, which are encrypted platforms. I've also got myself a VPN, which, yeah, is a great way to kind of protect yourself more when you're using the internet. And I'm researching ways that we can have community online platforms that aren't owned by corporations. 
So there are definitely options out there um, to research, but that's also where my mind is going a bit as we as we digitally collect and um, probably continue to do so quite heavily for the next few months. So I want to turn to the UK since you're you're from there, and the UK within the context of Europe has faced you know massive transmissions and deaths. And I want to know how your family's doing. Are they okay? How are your community, those who are organizing and have been organizing and have been part of this liberation project, um, how have they been coping with this current crisis? I'm really thankful that my friends and family are well, and hopefully they will remain so. Um, But it's a pretty heavy time for people. I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty a lot of fear um, and yeah that can be really heavy for people I think what is exciting is that there's huge amounts of mutual aid happening across the UK lots of different organizations and groups setting up just autonomously organizing to make sure that their their street their neighborhood um, are really able to make sure that people are taken care of, that they have food to eat, um, that they have their medications if they can't leave the house. Um, And this is really, really beautiful to see. So I hope that that continues. And I know that there is work being done to ensure that those mutual aid networks are more decolonial, um, that there is a language that can be used the kind of code switches from the kind of wokeness, social justice language that many of us are able to speak into something that is going to be understood by folks who maybe haven't read those books or haven't been in an academic context speaking about those things. Um, So that feels exciting to me too. It's like, how can we use the language of care and accountability and reciprocity to build um, movements that that will hopefully see us through whatever is to come after coronavirus. We're going to be having to figure out long-term the repercussions of this because socialization is going to change in so far that we may not necessarily have the same modes of travel, the same modes of gatherings um, per se, and a lot will be put on hold for the summer, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't have new methods, new modes of care, resistance, even just being able to, as a collective, engage in decolonial practice, that's, that's definitely not over. Do you have hope for the future with respect to how we can learn from this current pandemic, especially as it relates to your practice and somatic research? I have a lot of hope for the future, yes. I feel that given the moment we're in with so many things falling away, with so many of the cracks of capitalism and neoliberalism being shown bare, there is a a level of um, awakening that's happening amongst a lot of people who maybe didn't care, didn't care to know, or remained ignorant. Um, there's a lot more awareness about the failings of capitalism and the need to find new systems to really take care of one another and to live lives that are not structured around us being robotic, labor-driven people. So I think that with the losses and the uncertainty, there's now a lot of space to vision what could come next. In order to do that, I do think we need to grieve the lives that we had before, because I, I don't know if, 
if those lives are going to look quite the same as they once did. I don't know if there's going to be a return to business as usual. Um, and for me personally, I, I don't want there to be because it didn't feel normal for me to live in the world as it was with that much inequality. So I hope that in these things breaking down a bit more, um, we are able to vision and feel into what could come next and how we can play a role in creating the more beautiful world that our hearts knows is possible. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. And this episode featured digitally-based voices who live in Berlin. During season two, we'll occasionally provide coronavirus-related perspectives featuring decolonial activists, scientists, historians, migrants, scholars, and more interspersed with other decolonial episodes that take a break from the current pandemic. In this episode, Lee Richards provided some tips on how we can help marginalized communities here in Berlin. Absolutely support any initiatives that are supporting homeless people, because obviously with fewer people on the streets, these people are receiving less, you know, footfall. There's no. So if you come across any of those initiatives, just throw some coins that way. There are trans solidarity initiatives um, that I'm aware of, at least on Instagram. Support artists in any way you can, whether that be through the, um, there's like, I think, uh, a Berlin Artist Collective donation uh, page, at least again on Instagram. And it's very much heightened the awareness that during a pandemic art is so important the books we consume the television content we consume any of the performances all of these have shifted but people have been creating that the whole time and i think now i hope that there's been an increase in the appreciation of artists so please do throw some coins to your local artists as always there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes to learn more about the podcast or to find more information about people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate or comment and share our episodes with other people. You can find our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us and please stay safe and merry.